to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Cody Miller has lived the kind of challenging life that most of us can't imagine. She was born to parents that struggled with heroin addictions and became a mother and wife at the age of 16. She divorced at age 19 and went on to develop an addiction of her own. She ended up using for the next 14 years, which sadly resulted in the loss of custody of her son during his high school years. Cody has now been clean for the last three years. She's working the steps, she's involved with NA, and her son is now back in her life. Now a master barber, Cody has turned her attention to those in need with her nonprofit, Faith for Faith. Faith for Faith provides free haircuts and scholarships for disadvantaged young men in the foster care system. You can read more and donate at faithsforfaith.org. So here's Cody Miller. We usually like to start with, uh, tell us about where you grew up and what it was like uh, growing up where you grew up. I, I, are you from Atlanta? Are you from San Diego? I have no idea where you're from. No, I'm from Atlanta. Okay. Atlanta. So um, this part may be a little sensitive to hear for some because I didn't have the best upbringing, but um, I was born in um, actually at DeKalb General Hospital and my parents were older whenever they had me. My mom turned 37 the day after that she had had me. Um, My parents had struggled with a heroin addiction for a long time. Um, They had, you know, it was all opiates. So that's how... I, um, my childhood started was with two parents that were heroin addicts, you know, and the stuff that came along with that, like, um, not holding down steady jobs. Um, we didn't really move around a lot, but they, um, I really don't ever remember my parents working. There was a lot of hustles, a lot of selling of drugs to make ends meet. So, and that's what it was. It was the, you know, the bills barely being covered and not really much money for anything else except for their habit. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of how my childhood went was spent riding in the backseat of a car to go cop dope. Um, did you go to school? Yeah, I did. Um, whenever it became the age to start school, i uh, my parents moved us up to out of DeKalb County out to the country um, so that we could live a slower paced lifestyle. And I think really to, to get my dad out of the city. Um, he did a lot of, uh, you know, drug sales and, um, they had just gotten so bad off the heroin that they needed to get him out. So they moved us out to Adairsville, Georgia. So I grew up in a little bitty country town where, um, the high school was, uh, like Friday nightlights or whatever that movie where it's based all the way you know everything's based around the high school football team and um, I grew up cheering and playing sports and homecoming court and a lot of that was a motivation on my end to do things my parents weren't really involved with you know going to my games or um, any of that I just I wanted to do it so that's that's what I did Are, are you an only child no, I have three older siblings. So um, from me to the next one up, we're seven years apart. And then from me to the oldest, we're 17 years apart. Oh, gotcha. So when your parents moved you guys out to that small town, uh, did their lot in life improve or did it basically stay the same? 
it, it stayed the same. There were just, you know, trips to Atlanta and back, which meant me riding in the backseat of a car um, and going to dope houses and sitting out with my mom while my dad would run in kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that they, they got off the heroin, I believe, or didn't do it as much, but they got they were into pain pills just as hard. So did they try to protect you from it even while you were in the backseat, you know, with them as they went to cop dope? Um, when you say protect me from it, as in like see them shoot up? Or like keep you from doing any of it, uh, consuming any of it, or yeah, oh. or even letting you see. No, like I, I didn't see, um, th they wouldn't shoot up in front of me or you know, they'd always go into the bathroom or something like that. But as far as me being exposed to it, no, like they did not um, want me to do it. That was not okay. Not by any means. They held me to a different standard to, to which they lived. Mm. Yeah. And heroin, uh, when I was growing up, I was born in the late sixties as a teenager. I, I was told that it was the most uh, addictive substance on earth. And I think at the time, I think most people believe that. I think some would argue that maybe uh, crystal meth uh, is is as addictive, if not a little bit more addictive. But heroin is an extremely addictive thing. And so once you get hooked, very few people are able to recover from that. But we'll come to, to, to that uh, as it relates to you personally in a little bit, Cody. So when you were a, a toddler, you were a five-year-old, you were just entering uh, school age, That that's that your parents behaved in a certain way and that was your normal, right? Right. Absolutely. At, at, at what point did you realize that it wasn't normal? Um, well, I knew from a very young age, like kindergarten, first grade that, you know, you didn't talk about this at school. It was not to be talked about. It was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I knew it wasn't okay. But I remember seeing people um, like going to spend the night with my friends in elementary school and seeing their lifestyle as far as the materials that they had, their parents going to work every day, um, routine that I had never experienced. My parents were, you know, either once we moved out to the country, like they were at home, they didn't go to work. You know, if they were gone, I knew where they were at. They were either gone to a friend's house, which was usually to go pick up something or to the grocery store. But, um, so I started seeing, you know, different patterns and that it wasn't normal. But I remember, um, you know, like Dare coming to school and them asking if they had ever seen anybody do drugs or if their parents had ever, you know, smoked weed or, or whatever. And I remember other kids raising their hands and I would go home and be like, mom, you know, so-and-so raised their hand when they asked at school if their mom and dad did drugs. I can't believe they told on them. And this was an elementary school. So I was very hip to what was going on. Yeah. Wow. So you, you ended up, uh, despite how your parents were living, you ended up trying to be, uh, somebody who contributed to their high school, very active in, in sports. Uh, it sounds like fairly active across uh, a lot of dimensions. How were you able to do that given where you, uh, were living? Um, so with my beauty pageants and stuff that I was in, there were times that, uh, my friends parents would pay for my dress uh, just because they wanted me to do it um I remember my mom like 
let's say for school clothes or for my cheerleading uniform to rent it, you know, she would have to sell more of her pills that month so that I could do that. Wow. So uh, you graduated high school and what's the name of the small town again? Daresville. Daresville. So you, you, you graduated high school, I assume. No. You didn't graduate high school. No, I didn't okay. graduate. <laughs> oh, so, so tell us. I, um, I had met a boy and at 16, I got pregnant. And um, because I was from that little bitty town and the values that I already had within me, you know, I, I thought that if the, the right thing to do was since I was pregnant was to get married. So I literally ran away from home and got married. I emancipated myself at 16. Wow. So you had uh, a child at, at 16 and you got married at 16. Mm -hmm. And yeah. wow. Okay. And then, so did you ever go back to high school? No, I got my GED. Okay. Oh, so, so what was it like, um, you know, being a, a really young mother like that? It was not easy. Um, I didn't speak to my parents after I had left home. Uh, I guess because, you know, they were really opposed to it because they knew of how hard it was going to be and what kind of life it was going to be for me. And I was so young, I didn't understand that at the time. I thought that they were just being irrational and not understanding my point of view of it, of being pregnant or wanting to keep my child. And um, so that's whenever, you know, I, I made the decision to leave home but it, it wasn't easy, you know, all the stuff that I was used to doing, like all the cheering and sports and being popular, all that just fell off because no one's going to be around, um, you know, someone that's pregnant. That's not cool. That's not fun. Mm. So, um, and that was hard with my son's father too, getting married so young. He was 19 and we didn't know what we were doing, which we were only married for three years before we divorced. And th was there ever a point, I guess, th did your, did your parents um, kind of come around and, and, and accept you more after a certain amount of time? Yeah. Um, actually I ended up moving back home whenever we got divorced for a few months before, like in the in-between, like while I was actually going through the divorce before I moved back out. But yeah, they, I mean, they came around and they love my son so much, you know, but That's I awesome. still didn't. There wasn't a lot of um, anyone babysitting him because I had this whole ordeal that in my mind that I had to prove to everyone that even though I was a young mom, I would still be a good mom. So, you know, I, would, I was an adult. I paid bills like I was supposed to and took care of my son like a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old mom would, you know? And were you, so you were working and also trying to get a GED and taking care of a, of a young son? Oh yeah. And when did you get your GED eventually? So I was 25 when I got my GED because I remember getting it in the mail um, for Mother's Day. Oh wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so I was like, okay, this is yeah, worked out. That's yeah, so that's cool. cool. So uh, did your parents uh, were they good grandparents? Sounds like they loved your son. Yeah, they loved him, but because of their lifestyle, um, even though they were at home, I just didn't really, first of all, I didn't want my son far, you know, to really be away from me very much. But 
you know, my dad would sit around still nodding out and that kind of thing. And I didn't really want my son around it. So I kept a distance gotcha. from him. How did you make money? When Which he, my were... dad would come. Sorry, go I was ahead, go. Say my dad would come over to my house. Like after my mom passed away, my dad would come over and help me with Aiden at my house. And that was fine. They, that's when they got super close. Are they still super close? No. So my mom passed away whenever I was 22 and um, my dad died the next year. Oh gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty bittersweet. She passed away on their anniversary and then he passed away on her birthday. Mm. Wow. Wow. So uh, when you were a young mom, how, how did you make money? How did you uh, fend for you and your son? I worked sometimes two jobs. So I was in the restaurant business, so I'd wait tables and some work part-time office jobs and just do whatever I had to do as far as working went, you know. How old is your son now? He, he just turned 20. Oh, wow. Okay. You don't look a day. You don't look a day over twenty-five, Cody. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, when did your, um, you know, exposure to, to, I guess your exposure to heroin started right out of the gate. Uh, but was it what? At what point in your life did you did you start using? Um, so by the time I was um, out of young teenage age, like fourteen, I had you know, I was partying then and I had tried all different kinds of drugs. I had tried meth and I had tried heroin and, um, different pills, drinking, smoking weed, but then it fell to the wayside when I first had my son. Um, as I got older, I started with the pain pills and those would kind of go in and out, but it was just the, the smaller pain pills. And when I say smaller, like the not as strong ones. And that's whenever I developed a opiate addiction that later turned into, um, you know, an, an IV addiction with pain pills and heroin and methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And were you first getting these pain pills from like prescriptions or, or was my it kind dad. of the same? Oh, okay. Your yeah. Dad. I just got them from my dad. Did, okay. did your dad know that you were getting them? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I could tell you, Cody, I I've live in a small town in Virginia. I grew up in the small town I live in now. And I know there heroin's out there. It's easy to get your hands on all kinds of things. But it just it didn't seem uh, like it was prevalent for me. And for you, it was just always nearby. It was almost too easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of my family members um, have drug addictions. So, and for me, it's never been hard to find, no matter what state I was in, what city, because I had been around it in my life. So I knew what kind of people did it. And I could always mesh well with them, with that type of person, or, you know, those types of people. Even right. in a city that you don't know anybody in, that you're a complete stranger to. Yeah, it didn't take long. I can okay. always. Wow. Do we want to? Do we want to explore that? Uh, like, if if I'm going into uh, D.C. and I don't know anybody in D.C., how how do I score heroin? 
Or do oh, I not? Well, because I'm, I'm a uh, middle-aged guy. Do I not have a chance of scoring it? Well, I mean, it really just depends on you. You see it in people's eyes. You can see it in their eyes if they're high or not. Um, and people can see it in your eyes, too. They can see it in your face. Like dealers, like when you go to Atlanta, they can look at you and know if you get high, high or not. And they'll offer it to you in bigger cities like that. Smaller cities, it's just real risky. You just kind of, you know, look at the person, feel them out a little bit, see, you know, their mannerisms, their behaviors, and um, just start talking to them. So it's almost like a tell in poker. You, you can figure out what somebody has with them and what they can offer just by uh, observing them for a bit. Yeah, like with heroin addicts and opiate addicts, you know, your the pupils get pinpoint, they get small. With meth and your, um, like meth and coke and different things like that, the pupils get bigger. Um, so you can, and you can just tell by the mannerisms too, like I was saying, like with anyone that's doing speed, they're going to be up, they're going to be going, they're going to have certain body movements. Um, and then with the downers, like heroin and pain pills, your you know xanax stuff like that they have a more like their the muscles in their face are more relaxed they um a lot of times have a different style like their clothing the way they carry themselves you just know wow and so were you addicted to everything you just mentioned oh yeah yeah so i've been clean for three years now i just made my three-year mark being completely clean and sober off of any and every mind-altering substance. Congratulations. That is amazing because you are part of a very small group of people that were addicted to opiates and heroin, uh, and you're on a, uh, the better side now. It's amazing. Yeah, so now that I'm on this side, the way that um, we – I'm going to say we – the way that we stay clean is by helping other heroin or just other addicts, alcoholics, um, I am part of HA and AA. HA is Heroin Anonymous, and then of course you know AA. Um, mm -hmm. But we just we help other addicts with no other reason behind it but to help them find peace of mind. And seeing the stuff that they go through helps us stay clean. So you ended up getting uh, you started using as a uh, an early teen. You have a, a son. You get your GED by 25, but you were using through that entire period, right? Yeah, I was um, a functioning addict for a long time um, until I was 29 or 30. And that's whenever I started um, the intravenous use. And you just really can't maintain that way. Um, or if you can, it's not for very long. So from that point, um, I'm 30, I'll be 37 this year. So till I was 33, it was just, you know, the pedal to the metal, all out. Um, that's when I started catching drug charges, um, going to jail, all that. You know, I lost my son. My son had to go to his aunt's for the beginning of his freshman year till he graduated. Then he's just recently came back home and is with me. So I think Toya had mentioned that because um, we we're super close. We had never been apart. And then here I was just completely way off in left field and wasn't being a good mom. You know, that's what it came down to. I couldn't provide for him the way that I needed to. I wasn't teaching him the things I needed to. And he went to his aunt's and um, 
that's whenever, you know, after I lost him, I completely derailed and started going to jail. So I'd got some really bad drug charges, like drug trafficking charges, was in jail for a year fighting those and managed to rack up charges in two different states. So I still don't have a driver's license because of this, even though I've started the nonprofit, I'm in the process of buying a house. I've done all these really great things, but can't drive a car. <laughs> you know, it's just, wow. I'm still suffering from the consequences that I, from the choices that I made. So when you were a, uh, like you were saying, a function, functional addict, uh, was, was there a point at which you knew that you had lost control sort of like I, I you probably you probably knew you were addicted but kind of still knew that you had somewhat control you could still be functional you could still get your GED and take care of your son but once once you started with the intravenous stuff was was there ever a point where you you realized that you had lost control absolutely it was even right before I had started the intravenous use I was on the phone with a friend of mine and pills had already became such a priority that I had to have them. Like I could not function without them as in I would get, you know, from the withdrawals from not having them after so many hours, you go into withdrawals and you get just extremely sick. And there were many times that I had to, you know, like we couldn't go do something or we had to wait around for an extra hour so I could go get pain pills to go do a family event or an outing. Um, that's when I knew I was in trouble. And I remember being on the phone with a friend of mine and not being able to, to function. You know, I was like, this is just getting crazy. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop. And instead of trying to figure out how to stop, I went head first into, you know, being sick and not being able to get pills one day to someone had something. And the only way that they had had um, a pill that the only way you could do it was through, you know, shooting up. So instead of just being sick, I wanted to be well. So I, I shot up and that's where it started. Mm. And it sounds like you were, you were addicted for what, 18, 19 years of your uh, life? 14, 14 years. Wow. Okay. That's the consecutive time period. Oh God. So you were intermittent uh, as a teenager and then consistently for 14 years. Yeah. Uh, so you were you still addicted when you and LaToya met? Or had you already? No. no. So I was actually in a, um, a rehab. Okay. I Let me back up. I had done, I'd got in trouble for drug trafficking. And I had been in jail for a year waiting um, and fighting those charges. And instead of just going to prison, which would have been the easiest route, I knew that that would not help me that there's no way that that was going to help me by going to prison. I would have been home quicker, but I knew as soon as I got out, I would have been right back on the streets doing the same thing with the same habits. So I fought to go to a rehab, an intensive all women's rehab that, um, that was long-term. So I actually got that, um, completely by the grace of God. So I went to that rehab and it was towards the end of the rehab the intensive program that I had met Toya, she came in with a job um, readiness program and I had already went through one and was starting school from the rehab, um, which was barbering school. And that's where I had met her and we had clicked and she, um, 
even after that time period was over, we've still stayed in touch and she had nothing to gain by talking to me, nothing. And I knew that. And this is part of um, where, like I was saying, as far as like, as an addict on the other side, on the recovery side, we just help people because that's, we're just trying to get them relief. You know, we're trying to give them a hope that things can get better and that they will get better. And she was that for me. She cheered for me on the sidelines as I was going through school. I graduated school. And then um, the job that I have now, which is remarkable, I do very well for myself. She was cheering me along through that. And then with a the nonprofit, she's just always been on the sidelines since I met her. She, she is a very big hearted, uh, very powerful force. And so you, you are uh, very fortunate that Toya was uh, part of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were, you were in, you would have faced just so our listeners understand. And, and so uh, Daniel, I understand you were in prison and then you had an opportunity to go through this intensive rehab. Uh, was your day to day very different in intensive rehab than it would have been or was in a typical prison setting? So in a prison, a prison setting, you're, you're doing your time. You know how much time you've got, you know what you've got to do. So you're just getting by, you know, with this intensive rehab, they taught me all kinds of things like boundaries, what boundaries are and how to set them. Simple things that people should be taught at a younger age, but I obviously was never taught that. Um, how to handle everyday situations or just life situations. Because if it was really bad, if something had happened in my life that was really bad, I got high. If something was really great, I got high. Um, instead of just feeling normal emotions like most people do, you know. So they taught me that. They taught me a lot about um, trauma and what trauma looks like and how to, I guess I could say recover from trauma. Like how to actually deal, face, face it and deal with it. And then um, a lot about like what really happens to your brain whenever you do drugs and when trauma happens to you, there was all kinds of classes that they taught, which I've learned so much. And just the therapy on and how to um, live day to day was amazing. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Was that your first time in a rehab setting? I had been to a detox one time before, which was a 30 day program. But as soon as I got out, it was right back. Um, you know, where I was, my husband, um, he had asked me to come home. And when I came home, there were drugs there. So, mm -hmm. so did you try to quit yourself during that 14 year span or, or was it always like, you know, that's only something that you do in a detox or a rehab context? Well, I, I was really naive about the whole um, rehab. Like I thought the only, the only people that got to go to rehab were people that had money. And I knew I didn't have the money for that. So the only thing I knew to do is just to keep doing more pills. I might try to wean down, wean myself down, which that's a joke. Like that's, that it doesn't really um, ever work. Or let's try a different drug to try to get off this one. That's a joke. Um, 
but yeah, I just, I didn't realize how many programs are out there to help people with addiction. I knew that I wanted, I was at point A and wanted to get to point B, but there was no connect the dot. Like there was no line. I had no idea how to get there. And I just, if I would have known a fraction of what I know now and what's out there to help, um, I probably would have gotten to point B a long time ago. I just never could figure out how to get there. Do you think that addicts are like, let's say you, but rewind five or 10 years, uh, pe people in that position, do you think that there's still a lot of people that just don't know the amount of resources that are out there because the, the world in which they live and their lifestyle is so insulating? Um, th there may be some people, but I feel like that the, the war on drugs has gotten so big and, and the opiate epidemic has gotten so big and in everyone's face that you can drive down the highway and see billboards now. There's hotlines. There's all these things that um, I don't believe, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was much more hush-hush. And, you know, and addicts were swept under the rug or swept aside because they were an embarrassment or they were shunned in society instead of where now more and more people are more open arms and know that addicts can recover and that they do and that they just need help. So, yeah, I feel like it's a lot different now than it mm -hmm. was 10 years ago. So how did you, uh, how did your work start with, uh, you know, HAAA being, are you like a mentor technically? Um, so you, the way that HA and AA and C, like Crystal Meth Anonymous, all these different um, programs work is you you start going to meetings and i started going to meetings because i was i had to per the rehab i was at so you start going to meetings and then um you get a sponsor and then you work that sponsor works the 12 steps with you and the last step is you help others so to practice your 12th step you sponsor other people but like with me being a woman i will only sponsor women men only sponsor men and so do you ever complete the 12th step or are you basically doing the 12th step the rest of your life? You're doing the 12th, 12th step for the rest of your life. But then every now and then you can go back through and redo them. So like I've finished the 12 steps with my sponsor, but my sponsor moved away. So I will now get another one and probably go back through them. Oh, cool. But, but it never, it never hurts you to go back through them because you address different things in your life. Could, could you, uh, do you know them by heart? The, the 12 steps? I can't yeah. just, like, Dan, you know, Daniel, the spot, Dan, I can't recite them. Daniel's doing <laughs> what I typically do. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no worries. So you, you'd have a sponsor, but you could also be sponsoring somebody while being sponsored. There's like a Absol lineage. Yeah, absolutely. So okay. they, they actually call them like, like my sponsee could meet my sponsor and I would say this is your grand sponsor. Uh, I like yeah. it. Did, did you coin that term or, or was that already out there? No, oh, no, that's been out there for, for years. Do Got you it. have any, do you have any grand sponsees? No, I don't even have a sponsee right now. I just finished my 12 steps and it took me over a year to do it. Um, that's not for like, everyone doesn't take that long. It's just what my sponsor did. So, um, I raise my hand to sponsor people. So then someone will come and ask me to sponsor them. 
Mm, but because great. of COVID, we just started meeting back in person. Yeah, strange times, right? Uh, I assume your sponsor is going to be really close to you the rest of uh, while you're both still living, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so jumping back to when you were a teenager, uh, who were the biggest influences in your life when you were 14, 15 years old? Um, so my grandmother and one of my uncles whom didn't do drugs and um, were very straight laced. And um, they both died whenever I was around. So my grandmother died when I think I was 12 or 13. And then my uncle died, I think when I was 14. And so they were the ones that I looked to to guide me so that I wouldn't grow up like my parents. And then with them passing away, I was pretty much lost. You know, I didn't know. I just kind of gave up in a way. Yeah, and 14-year-olds aren't very worldly, right? They just don't know. And to your public awareness point about the billboards, th there wasn't an awareness uh, of how big the problem was in small towns and big cities. And yeah, you you were just in this horrible vacuum that uh, led to a, a pretty tough road, a really tough road. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like I, said, I was 14, and I remember thinking, or whenever my uncle had died, I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, no, it was my uncle died. No, my grandmother and then my uncle. That's right. So when he did, he was this little last one. I just remember thinking like, oh God, like, what am I going to do? Like, I have no chance in making it now. How am I going to have a normal life? And I don't think that that's normal for 14 year olds to think. Not at all. I think you had, you probably had a lot of, uh, you're, you're really with it. I mean, even from the young age, knowing not to, rat out your parents in school to, to knowing, you know, at the age of 14, what, what the right way was and, and what the wrong way was. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's like, I think that, that your life is, is a really powerful testament to, to what, you know, how, how circumstances can, can land you in, you know, hot water from your childhood. But at the same time, your story is pretty incredible and in that, even after a 14 year um, addiction, you, you were able to re recover from it for three years. So uh, it really is very cool. Thank you. It's amazing. And, it doesn't, and you don't just recover from this. Like you really have to work at it all the time because it's so easy for us to slip up. I had read one time that only 1% of intravenous users, um, will get off of the needle and stay off of the needle one percent like that's hardly nothing you know so mm -hmm. we really do have to work at this all the time like can i go into a bar where people are drinking yeah do i really have an interest in that no not at all because i don't drink but it's just little things that you know we don't put ourselves in certain situations or around certain people like there's you know a lot of this is um addiction is just a um, it's not the root of the problem. It's just, I'm looking for the right word. Um, it's all good. It'll come to you. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so it just, the addiction is just, um, where there's really a brokenness inside of you and that's how you react to it. So mm. even though the 
the addiction part, like the using of drugs is gone. There's still the, the mind that, you know, things that go on to where I have to stay on top of it too, which is through God, you know, conscious contact with God. And, um, that's, yeah, that's just a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, brokenness inside and not having somebody there to help you along. uh, I mean, it's it's incredible that you are where you are now, given those facts as a teenager. Thank you. So you're, uh, you know, with HA and 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 your life, are you? Do you see uh, people kind of fall off the wagon uh, ever with HA, or and do you fear that happening to yourself? Um, I see it all the time, all the time. People that have had years clean, they might go out one time. And when I say go out, that means like they've relapsed. They've went out and they've used one time and they overdose and die. Like this Mm. is a thing that um, we see all the time and it's really, really sad. And then even, you know, seeing someone that's relapsed and seeing them high, it's so heartbreaking so heartbreaking because you don't know if they're going to come back or not. You don't know if they're going to survive through this um, relapse that they've had. And for myself, I'm terrified of it. I am absolutely terrified of relapsing because I have worked so hard to be where I'm at, so hard on the relationships with the people that I have in my life. And I would lose all of that in just a matter, I mean, of weeks. I would lose everything I've worked I mean, I've cried about, I've like blood, sweat and tears about, it would all be gone. Mm. So yeah, it is. I mean, it's terrifying. And you've, you've been through it once, uh, losing basically everything. Uh, like, uh, and so I, I can totally see that. Do, do you think that it, it would be so, so for people that have, have already been addicted previously, um, does it really just take just the one time to, for, for a relapse to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One time, because that one time it's an obsession that starts in your head to where it's like a light switch. Like as soon as you, you use that light switch goes on and you are obsessed with it, obsessed with with using, with getting high, how to get high. And you just go down a rabbit hole with it. Mm. Cool. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, stuff that you've built with all the blood, sweat and tears, you know, in, in, with your uh, master barber status and all that stuff, like um, how, how has that been, you know, setting up a business and, and running the business? So I, whenever I was getting out of barber school, I decided that I wanted to start more in a high-end shop. So in order to, um, which I feared I might get chewed up and spit out, but that's what I wanted to do. So I went in to um, a shop in Brookhaven and um, I've done really, really well for myself there. I've been promoted. I'm a senior barber. Um, I'm the only barber there. So we are a fine men's salon that caters just to men and um the other people that work there, they're stylists. So I like, we all cut hair. We all do the services, but I do all the straight razor shaves on top of the haircuts and the other services. So Brookhaven's a uh, pretty well to do part of Atlanta, right? Yeah. It's on, it's right beside Buckhead. 
So it's the overflow from Buckhead. And I mean, these are $50 haircuts. So they're not, they're not cheap, you know? And do you establish like relationships with the, the, the clients that come in? Like, do you have regulars? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, it's just so bizarre sometimes because I have some bigger named um, and reputable clients like um, say like the mayor and they have no idea what I've been through. They have no idea, you know? And I remember I used to say all the time, like if I could just take, like when I was in active addiction, if I could take a percent or just a, the tiniest fraction of the effort that I put into doing drugs and I applied it to something positive in my life, there's no telling where I would be. And since I've done this, it's been mind blowing how far I've came just like with being in this shop and um, starting fresh out of school. And I built my clientele so, so well and been so persistent at my career and it's, you know, the hard work is paying off. Mm. That's, that's, that's awesome. That, that is so cool. <laughs> By yeah. the way, you may have noticed Daniel and me smirking when you said uh, some, uh, I think you said reputable or, or gave us the impression that you have some uh, maybe Atlanta famous folks that you cut hair for. Uh, they're welcome to join our podcast if you want to <laughs> hook them up with us. Right. I know quite a few people, so. I've, so, I've, I've, I've got your uh, contact info, Cody. Okay. So, so when you're doing like when you're doing the uh, the barber, I, what's the verb for it? Bar barbing. Uh, barbering. Barbering. Uh, yeah. I. Oh, it is okay. Um, you know, I, so you know, heroin is not exactly conversational material, but how open are you generally about your past and and your recovery to the people that you meet? Um. So, at work, because. I mean, let's be honest, people, you know, I said a lot of people are so open arms with addicts, but a lot of people aren't. They are still very judgmental. They are still harsh and better than. So I, I don't bring up my um, my addiction. I mean, there's a lot of people that I've worked with over, over the last year that still don't have any idea. Some people know and um, a lot don't because that's something that I've been tied to for so long and labeled with, with, with drugs. And I didn't want to continue that label. So uh, are you going to tell people that you were on this podcast? Um, yeah, I'll tell some people. Absolutely. But not, but not all the people you run into, right? No, which I mean, a lot of, um, you know, I talk about the nonprofit a lot at work. So that's something that I would share is this because if, I, you know, I'm not going to bring up, hey, I was a heroin addict, but whenever I talk about giving back and helping other people like these young men that I'm focused on helping, um, a lot of their past have to do with addiction and people are interested in that and people want to help. But if they're interested in that, then I am more than willing for them to understand or not understand, but to hear what I've been through that gave me the motivation to want to give back. I think it's really you know, brave of you. Uh, and I think that if they, if they were to listen to this, they would know that you're a, a straight shooter and, and, and an honest person. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think you have anything to worry about, but why, why don't you tell us about the nonprofit that you started then? Okay. So this is super exciting for me. Um, I had done a veterans event when I was still in school towards the end of my schooling. And it was like free haircuts for veterans. And a woman had approached me and asked me if I would 
um, come to this foster home, no, not a foster home, a group home for these young men and do haircuts because they didn't have money in the budgets for, for haircuts. And I was, you know, absolutely interested in it. And, um, but my contact with her kept falling short. Like we would phone tag or it just, it, it, it fell. So, um, the, the want to do this really started like a little fire started inside of me. And the more that I looked into some of these group homes, um, like the covenant house and Atlanta center of self-sufficiency, I started learning more and more about these young men. Um, a lot of them <clears throat> have been through some really horrifying things like, uh, sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, and they've been rescued through sex traffic busts, like sex traffic rings where the police have raided these and brought them in. So they're homeless. Um, some of them have had drug addictions already. <clears throat> some of them have, um, they're part of the LGBTQT um, groups and have been rejected by their, their families. Um, a lot of them have been molested at young ages, which led to that. And the streets can be so welcoming and I'm very aware of how welcoming they can be. And when I say welcoming as in selling drugs, um, there's gangs that will invite them in with open arms um, and there's prostitution. So I feel like, you know, with some of these group homes, if I can just have a few minutes with each one of them, um, so about 20 to 30 minutes, I can put whatever positivity I possibly can into these young men. So my target group of these or target age group is from like 16 to 22. So if I can, and if I can help them in any way, what I do is I have them write down on an index card while they're getting their haircut, their biggest dream, whether it be like being happy or <clears throat> a lot of them want to be famous rappers or whatever it may be so that I can pray for them. And no matter how hard these young men are, um, whenever I ask them if I can pray for them, I've not had one yet say, no, I don't want you to pray for me. They have like this softer side that appears for a minute. And a lot of these young men, you know, with the, the foster care system, they have been abandoned by their parents, which put them in foster care. Then they've been rejected. So they're older in foster care or they're at the age where they're aging out, which aging out of foster care, they are pretty much just kind of put on the streets like you're to do for yourself at this point. So if I can put anything, like I said, anything positive in them at all, if just one or two words sticks with one or two of them, then I've done my job. So I offer them grooming services, but I'm also um, going to offer this first year two scholarships to barber school. So they can go through barber school, they'll have a trade and they'll graduate debt free. And I will be able to mentor them along the way as well. Are, are you a one woman uh, nonprofit or do you have people helping you? No, I'm by myself at this point. And you're bankrolling the entire thing with the scholarships and everything? Um, I've got um, a couple people that have vouched to pay for these, but I've worked a deal with the owner of the school. So okay. it's actually the school I went to. Wow. Very, very um, cool. So tell everybody uh, the name of your nonprofit and where they can uh, learn more about it. Okay. So the name of it is Fades 
for faith. And um, you can go to Facebook and just put in Faith for Faith and you can look up there. There's also a donation platform, which any donations and all donations help tremendously with this. Um, but yeah, you can just read into it a little bit there. We're working on the website now, so that should be up pretty soon. Awesome, oh, yeah. And uh, well, I work on websites for a living. So if you need help um, in that way, feel free to reach out. It's always better with Daniel, you offer up your services yourself instead of me offering them. I, I, knew, I knew Paul was about to do it. No, but I, I, I may hit you up for that though. Please do. Uh, yeah, I, 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 would, I would honestly be happy to help. I think that's really incredible what you're doing. I'm like, I need, yeah. I'll say I need any help that I can get at this point because I have been clueless on what I'm doing. I just knew that this was a purpose that I and something I had to do. So I've been winging it all along the way from getting my 501c3. Like I've just been, you know, just next, the next step. Like, what do I do next? What do I do next? So yeah, I may call on you. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, yeah. Um, how long is this not how, how long have you had this nonprofit? Like, how long has it been up for? So before COVID had happened, just I just started going down to the group homes a few months. And I just got my 501c3 through the quarantine. I got my letters in for that. So I've been working on it for the last year. Okay. Um, and I think that that's a cool, uh, maybe, maybe the last thing we can talk about is um, how COVID-19 has affected your life okay. uh, in these last couple of months. Well, we, we've got two, two more topics uh, after that as well, Daniel. Oh. Our, standard, our standard question, and then we're going to talk about her son. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So, so do, do you want to go COVID-19? Tell us about your experiences over the last three and a half months or so. Sure. So with COVID, um, my, my shop was closed for seven weeks. And um, so since I've gotten out of jail, I literally hit the ground running, like through rehab, um, I outgrew the program, they said, because I was doing so much like I have not stopped. So when COVID hit and I had to quarantine, it gave me just a few minutes to be able to sit down and do nothing. And my son had just moved home. So we got to spend good quality time together. And I really enjoyed it because um, it's not always easy for me to not do things or not be in motion doing something. So I, I really enjoyed it as far as the financial end. Um, it was a little rough cause you know, um, I wasn't making a paycheck even though we had unemployment, it still wasn't as much as my normal pay is, but I was super grateful for that anyway, but I just knew it was time to get back to work. So as soon as we opened, we could open our shop. I was one of uh, four that came back. Um, six of my other coworkers didn't come back till July. So that was, uh, that was another blessing. Just, there was such a surge of people that needed haircuts. Um, I, at least I know I'll always be needed with my profession. <laughs> so that's maybe $50 haircuts, but Hey, people still need haircuts. Right on. So, uh, Cody, imagine that you're 25 years old. Okay. okay. And you're, and, but you are, you're, you're not addicted to anything. You're, 
you, but you have a, an opportunity to do one of two things. And we, and by the way, we ask everybody this question. It's kind of our okay. little thing we do. Uh, would you rather go down the path of being a stand-up comedian for mm -hmm. a few months or join the U.S. military? Remember, you're 25. You, you, you don't have a son. You're not addicted to anything. Join the military or become a comedian. Um, I'm going to say a comedian because um, as far as joining the military, you know, what I've seen from people coming out of the military isn't always so great. It's just as much trauma as if you were an addict, you know, um, there's a, a lot of negativity that comes from that. So I would go for the comedian. Okay. Do you think you'd be a decent comedian? Probably not. I'd probably be horrible. <laughs> I'm really goofy, but I don't know about standing up for people making jokes. Yeah, it's a, it's a different animal. And I speak as someone that's never even tried it. But, uh, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, da Daniel's the guy that chose comedian, and I'm the guy that chose the military. Uh, and, of course, I'll uh, remind our listeners, and Cody, I'll, I'll share with you, uh, I think it's roughly 10% of people that have put on the uniform end up going to dangerous places overseas. And so the, the chances are that you end up not being in a dangerous place that does some really uh, not so fun things to you. Okay. I'm just speaking on what I've seen. So that's why I chose the. Well, you, you've seen more things than I've seen for sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Cody, your son is 20 now. What's your son's name? My son's name is Aiden. Aiden. And that's A-I-D-E-N? Yep, that's right. Okay, that's a, uh, a strong, solid name for your son. So he's back in your life. Uh, he's been back in your life, it sounds like, for a couple of years? Yeah. Are you, yeah. So tell, tell us about your relationship with your son, and tell us about him in general. Okay, so Aiden um, is probably one of the best human beings I have ever met in my life. And I'm not just saying that because he's my son. Like, this kid is so genuine and beyond his years, which... <clears throat> He's always been a loner, which I can relate to because I've always been a loner too, but he's just so intelligent and he's so kind-hearted. Um, you don't see very many young men act the way that he does. It's few and far in between. But he's um he's also he's in barber school now, so he's decided to take after his old ma mm -hmm. and go to barber school too. So that's it's pretty cool. Can he work in your, uh, in your barbershop? Or, yeah. 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 Okay. Would that be too much of a uh, mom for him? Maybe? No, probably not. We're, we're pretty tight. We're not too far behind the other one usually. Okay. Nice. So I, I'm, I'm ecstatic for you that you're, you're able to get him back in your life. Uh, he's, and he's, he's probably the, the, uh, the best thing to think about if you ever are tempted to go back into that life. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's already, he set his boundaries with me with that. I mean, he told me if you ever relapse, I will not talk to you again. I won't want to see you. And I, I understand how close we are, you know, but, um, still though, that was a, a yes, sir to him, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That's a hell of a thing to say for, um, a 20 or a teenager, you know? Yeah. I, I hate that he was ever in the position to have to say that. That's what's, sad you know he should never have to say that but the reality is he did so yeah and today's a new day and, right. and you're and you're you're recovered and you're not going to relapse because you have too many reasons to uh to avoid relapsing 
I would like to think yeah. so. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll close with this, uh, Cody. And by the way, it's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. And we really appreciate your openness here. Tell, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with uh, Latoya. So with Toya, like I said, she had nothing to gain at all from um, investing in me. And when I say investing, as in her time, to text me, to call me, to check in, to cheer me along. And I, I don't forget that at all. Like, I don't forget the people that were with me from the beginning of this. So I, um, I just have a lot of respect for this woman. And it was such a, uh, an amazing time to be able to call her and ask her to be my realtor and to be able to invest back, you know, a little bit mm. as far as um, such a, a great period in my life to where I get to buy a house, you know. So that was really, that was really cool. But yeah, That's she's just an amazing woman. She really is. Yeah, we we had a good time talking to her on the podcast. I, I got had the opportunity to work with her. She's uh she's a force for sure. Mm-hmm. A force for a lot of good things. Cool. Well, Cody, it was uh, great uh, hearing about your story. I'm I'm so happy that you're on the other side of what you went through, uh, and we wish you nothing but the best. Thank yeah. you. And uh, Cody, I might I might come down to Brookhaven um, for one he of those haircut. haircuts. He definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at that. It's a he's a mess. Well, I can take care of it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, Dan, you just got to figure out the uh, eight-hour drive or the uh, hour and five-minute flight. Yeah. Down to Atlanta. <laughs> and, and then yeah. the 45-minute drive to Brookhaven from the airport, if you're lucky. <laughs> It'll all be it was, worth it. It was very nice to meet you guys, and thank you for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.